This is the Journal of American History podcast for September 2009. Hello, this is Ed Linenthal, editor of the Journal of American History, welcoming you to our fourth podcast. In this program, we speak with Professor Matthew Pinsker about his State of the Field essay in Lincoln Studies that will appear in the September 2009 issue of the Journal of American History. Matthew Pinsker is Associate Professor of History and Pohanka Chair in American Civil War History at Dickinson College. Matt, welcome and thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, Ed. It's good to be with you. You write in your State of the Field that there has never been a more active or creative period in Lincoln studies than the past 10 or 15 years. Can you talk with us a bit about why this is so and what kinds of creative activity mark this period in Lincoln studies? Well, uh, it's uh, no news to anybody that each year brings more and more Lincoln titles and at least half of the reviews begin by noting the fact that there's been more written about him than any other person in American history, and yet they keep coming. Most people, I imagine, think that this is just profit-seeking, but I, I do think that the reason, the underlying reason for all of the new scholarship on Lincoln is new evidence, or at least access to old evidence that was kind of lost. And that's been the miracle of the last 10 or 15 years. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Tell us more about the miracle of the last 10 or 15 years in Lincoln Studies and how this new wave of creativity has changed the landscape. Well, with the new evidence on Lincoln, new access to recollections, more detailed access to his papers, uh, to his legal work, it's generated a whole host of creative uh, attempts to redefine his growth, whether it's as a young man becoming a responsible family man or a lawyer learning his trade, or just as a commander-in-chief, you know, learning how to master that war. The last generation of Lincoln scholars has really managed to put a finer, more realistic point on how hard he had to work to achieve success. In your state of the field, it was fascinating to me to read how you Uh, divided up the private Lincoln and the public Lincoln and looked at a variety of new works in in both of those areas. What problems are there in analyzing uh, not only uh, the private world of Lincoln, but uh, as Joshua Wolfshank did in Lincoln Melancholy, for example, the inner world of Lincoln, um, or, or anyone else for that matter? Well, the greatest problem with understanding Lincoln as a man is that he made every effort to prevent people from understanding him as a man. Uh, Not just historians, but his friends, and even his family. He was elusive. Uh, His law partner said that he was the most shut-mouthed man he ever knew. Lincoln knew how to keep secrets, and it is very difficult to try to take the measure of his inner world because he was so, so reticent about it. Matt, what's your take on some of the new studies that uh, deal with the private Lincoln? Well, when it comes to the private Lincoln, for years, professional historians uh, mostly evaded the subject or, or, or at least de-emphasized it. And then in the last generation or so, professional historians, for the first time really, have been using and relying on recollections about Lincoln from his close friends and extended family and people who knew him 
as a young man. Uh, these were oral histories collected by his law partner after the war and a handful of other accounts that have been produced since. These books by figures like Douglas Wilson or Michael Burlingame uh, or others in the field have redefined uh, attitudes toward Lincoln and his marriage. and They are certainly provocative, and some of them are you know, more important than others. Uh, one of the most notable of this group is Douglas Wilson's Honors Voice, which really charts Lincoln's growth as a young man uh, using the recollected accounts, but in a pretty subtle way. Others are less you know, effective uh, because they're not as adept at the context. And the most notable example of that was probably a book about Lincoln's sexuality by uh, C.A. Tripp that you know, argued that he was homosexual and that his homosexuality was one of the defining characteristics of his greatness. But even Tripp's book, for all its flaws, really delved into the evidence, uh, the recollected evidence in particular, in a way that um, you know, professional scholars had sometimes avoided. Matt, as an example of the kind of work that's done in the world of, of the private Lincoln, we mentioned Shanks Lincoln's melancholy already. It, it seems to me that one of the great challenges for any historian trying to do a psycho psychological analysis of people in the past is the kind of evidence uh, that you can gather, how you interpret that evidence from many, many years after, when it's difficult enough <laughs> to do this kind of analysis on uh, a, a living person. Could you talk a little just about your own sense of this kind of work, whether you find Lincoln's melancholy persuasive, how a historian like Schenck uses different kinds of evidence, I think it would be interesting for our readers to hear you uh, evaluate this. Josh Schenck wrote a well-respected book about Lincoln's uh, inner world. He called it Lincoln's melancholy. He addresses the subject of Lincoln's depression. And uh, it's an important book that uh, has divided people the reason why it's important is because Schenck is a little more sophisticated in the way he tries to psychoanalyze Lincoln from the 21st century than some of the earlier psychobiographers did in the 70s and 80s. He, he, he is a little more modest in his claims. It is so difficult to try to use psychology with historical figures. Uh, and it's especially difficult with Lincoln because he's so reticent. But Schenck weaves together a, a pretty powerful narrative. For somebody like me, I ultimately don't find it persuasive because when I compare the accounts of Lincoln's uh, so-called episodes of depression with the measure of his day-by-day -day activities, it doesn't add up to me. If he was depressed, there was no outward sign of it, at least once he became a professional figure. Uh, he didn't lose any time to depression. He didn't have any manic periods. If there's one thing that characterizes Abraham Lincoln, he was steady. Uh, now, when he was a younger man, uh, there are more episodes that are easier to define, and you can make a stronger case. Uh, but some of that, I think, has to do with how you read his own descriptions and his peers' descriptions of you know, what he called the hypo, what others would call melancholy. But ultimately, what I think is part of a kind of romantic culture of his early youth that uses talk of, you know, a nervousness and uh, hypo as a way to describe emotions that 
posit these people as more romantic figures than they were. Why don't we turn now to uh, the public, Lincoln? And you mentioned in your essay that uh, there's a new focus on Lincoln's legal career uh, as one that, in your words, shaped him in significant and far-reaching ways. Could you talk some about the new work that's being done there? Well, the new work on Lincoln's legal career is generated mostly by uh, just a revolution in access to material about his law practice. Uh, he participated in over 5,600 cases, and for years, uh, people had scattered access to that, but not even, you know, microfilm access. So in the last uh, 15 years or so, the Lincoln Legal Papers Project in Springfield has created a digital repository of all of the materials from Lincoln's legal career, which stretch over decades. And uh, what it opens up for us is a much richer understanding of how busy he was. This is a man who worked hard uh, as a circuit attorney, as an appellate attorney, who was involved in all kinds of litigation uh, and legal work, um, and uh, who certainly um, learned different values in that work. Uh, one work by Brian Burke, a uh, leading Lincoln scholar of the next generation, says that Lincoln learned the value of Greece. In other words, uh, how to smooth friction away in a system that's full of contest. Uh, another new book on this subject by a man named Mark Steiner argues that Lincoln learned uh, Whig values through the orderly process of the law. And they both make compelling claims, and they disagree with each other. Uh, there's a lot of um, recognition, though, now across the board, I think, among scholars, that Lincoln's law practice had a greater impact on his political habits and practice than than maybe people acknowledged in the past. Also, you talk about in the essay some exciting new works in what we might generally call the area of Lincoln's religion. What do you find most persuasive uh, in this new work? Focus on Lincoln's uh, speeches, focus on Lincoln's uh, morality and his his ethics. What are some of the, the new works that you find most interesting? Well, in the last dozen years or so, there has been literally an outpouring of material on Lincoln as a thinker, as a moral figure, as a religious man. Uh, it, it, it begins uh, in many ways with Alan Gelso's book, The Redeemer President, a study of Lincoln as a man of ideas. Uh, he argued that Lincoln was grappling with a sort of competing worldview uh, that tried to mesh Calvinism with the Enlightenment and sort of ultimately brought him to a, a kind of prudent, cautious stance that helped make something like emancipation not only possible but uh, achievable. And then there's been a host of other people who've responded to him, you know, who've argued that Lincoln was more of a romantic. This is someone like Stuart Winger. Uh, or that he was uh, a kind of natural-born moral statesman. This is uh, what William Lee Miller has done in a series of books on Lincoln. Some people have been, you know, uh, more skeptical of Lincoln's embrace of fatalism. Figures like Ronald White, who's written a series of books about Lincoln as a writer and a thinker. Uh, then there have been just some great overall studies of either particular speeches, like Gabor Borat's study of Lincoln's Gettysburg Gospel, which just offers a whole remarkable set of new portraits of this creed, uh, or um, you know, broader views, like Richard Carwoodine's book on Lincoln that talks about how he used his sense of Protestant evangelical culture in the 19th century to make his uh, political career possible. 
and to weave those values into his presidential action. You write uh, in your essay that the subject producing the most vigorous recent debate has been emancipation. Well, everyone knows that Lincoln's core legacy has been uh, that he was the great emancipator in American history, the man who ended slavery and yet still saved the Union. But, of course, at the time and since, there were always nagging critics. Uh, In recent years, there's been one particularly forceful criticism that's grown in in its volume, and that is that he was a a reluctant emancipator. He was forced into glory, in the words of Lerone Bennett. And, And Lerone Bennett's critique has sort of provoked a number of responses, and this debate's been very vigorous. Alan Gelzo wrote a book about Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation that argued that he was quite committed to emancipation but was prudent in how he achieved it. There have been some remarkable new works, though, uh, that aren't as well known, like uh, Burris Carnahan's Study of Emancipation that roots it in international law and in the evolving concept of human rights uh, and the promotion of liberty as a just cause of war. But the ultimate debate, I think, over emancipation comes down to where modern Americans and authors see Lincoln's views on race as impacting his views on slavery. And this is so complicated, um, and it's provoked a host of disagreements about nuance. But that is, at the end of the day, people want to know whether Lincoln was moving toward civil rights uh, or whether he was sort of in his view that slavery was wrong, but he was uncertain about what should succeed it. Let's stay on that theme for a minute. Uh, in your own view, do you see Lincoln's view uh, of African Americans as possible citizens of the United States changing uh, over time? Well, there's no doubt his views evolved. But uh, what I think is more remarkable is how consistent he was. Uh, Lincoln was somebody who believed always that slavery was wrong. Uh, now, the question of what to succeed it is an important one, uh, but that it was one that he tried to bracket, because you can't address that question until you first uh, settle the question of whether or not slavery is right or wrong. And for him, that was the great question of the day. He called it, in one of his recently discovered letters, the only living question of the day. Uh, and so... He devoted every ounce of his political career after 1854 to addressing that issue. Uh, Even as president of the Union during the Civil War, he understood uh, within a year and a half that the two issues were inseparable, Union and freedom. But he really resisted looking ahead towards civil rights and citizenship because he knew that if he committed himself too far in advance of public opinion or the state of the nation, it would make the question of ending slavery an impossibility. Uh, that's a prudent political calculation. That's what Gildo says in the Emancipation book that he wrote. But I also think it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's evident in every understanding I have of the context of the period, and that's so important to understanding the, the political calculation involved. When you hear an argument or read something that tries to use some of uh, Lincoln's words about uh, uh, colonization, for example, as a way to suggest that Lincoln had many faces in his attitude toward African Americans at different times in his career. What is your response to that? 
Um, look, I understand that this is an area where there's a legitimate range of opinion, but to me, uh, if you if you don't understand the context of the colonization debate, you can't appreciate the the, the, the the subtlety of Lincoln's position. On colonization, there were two positions. You could either be in favor of deportation, forced colonization, or you could be in favor of voluntary colonization, which meant that blacks would leave on their own. Lincoln was never a supporter of deportation. And if you didn't support deportation, you weren't really a supporter of colonization. Because if blacks were left to their own devices to choose, almost all of them were choosing to stay because they were more native as Americans than whites, more native-born by the Civil War era. And so, uh, you know, I don't think Lincoln ever acknowledged this in public uh, and maybe didn't even acknowledge it to himself in private. But by refusing to endorse deportation, he committed himself to a course that would ultimately lead to citizenship of blacks. You talk in your essay, Matt, about uh, two broadly defined eras in what you call the Lincoln theme, uh, participant era and a professional era. And you believe we've now entered a third stage, in your words, what might be called the project era that are shaped by innovative digital projects. Could you say just a little about these first two eras, the participant and professional era, and then what you are clearly excited about uh, is, is this third stage that we're just entering now, the project era. The uh, idea of um, a participant era in Lincoln studies is, is easy to understand. The men who lived and worked with him defined his memory after the Civil War. People like William Herndon, who was his longtime law partner, or John Nicolay and John Hay, who were his loyal White House aides. These men wrote the books that established many of the elements of Lincoln's legend and legacy in American popular culture during the decades after the Civil War. And it was really their work that a group of professional historians in the 20th century began to rebel against. Uh, they used their work, no doubt, but uh, they wanted to create a more objective uh, Lincoln, somewhat more removed from the partisan debates of the Civil War era. These are figures like James Randall, and culminating, in my opinion, with uh, his student, David Donald, uh, with his great biography in 1995. That era from the 1930s to the 1990s, I think, is the great professional era of Lincoln studies, where you have academic scholars working with evidence, trying to create a more objective portrait of Lincoln using a wide variety of sources. But I actually think that we're moving past that because of this digital revolution, which gives access to the same evidence to a wider network of people. And this is what I'm trying to define in this piece as the beginnings of a project era, where you disseminate knowledge more widely, you get more inputs from a greater number of folks, and you get a wider network of evidence to consider, layered and accessible in the way that only the digital world can provide. And uh, I think the result will be uh, a whole new Lincoln. It might not be um, a revolution in creativity, but I think it'll be a revolution in uh, appearance. Uh, it's almost like moving from analog to digital with TV transmissions, you know, or high definition. It's just a finer grained, more realistic portrait. And I have a, a great belief that in all of the aspects of Lincoln's career, the one where this will have the greatest impact will be on his political career. 
where I still think professional historians are struggling to describe his tactics. Could you say something about the kinds of uh, digital collections that you've come in contact with that you find uh, most exciting, most promising for future research, uh, perhaps in this particular area uh, of the study of Lincoln as a politician? Well, nowadays, uh, anybody sitting at their desktop can read all the papers that Lincoln received, can read both the, the transcripts and see the images of those papers, can read what he wrote uh, in response to them, can look at his day-by-day -day schedule, at least the, the elements of it that we've been able to reconstruct, can read and look at the legal papers he had, can look at the newspapers, not all of them, but many of them, that are reporting on his era, and can search all of this information, you know, full text with individual words. Uh, it's, it's an enormous leap forward in our ability to make connections and see patterns. And there's more to do. You know, uh, there are many more newspapers. There are letters and diaries that need to be digitized. There's all kinds of material that is being discovered in the last few years. I mean, in the last 15 years or so, the Papers of Abraham Lincoln, which is a project in Springfield designed to create a sort of digital portal that offers all access to major Lincoln materials, they've discovered hundreds and hundreds of new documents that have never been published as part of collections of Lincoln's works that he wrote. And some of these documents are very significant. And when you piece them together, they help create a new portrait of a political leader who is working behind the scenes in a way that's more aggressive, harder-edged, and in some cases more calculating than we've um, realized. Everybody knows that Abraham Lincoln was what they used to call a wire puller. But we never, or we rarely, actually hear the sounds of the wires being pulled with Lincoln. And so it's one thing to describe him as a practical politician, but it's another thing to actually document it. And I think we're moving toward the stage where we can document this. It's fascinating. Matt, say something about uh, your own work now. What, what are the projects that you are involved with, your particular fascination with Lincoln studies? I wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln's experience at the uh, soldier's home, which was his wartime retreat, kind of like a 19th century Camp David. And for me, that was an awakening because it was uh, a setting in his story that very few people had heard about, uh, and yet it had an impact on his uh, presidency. He lived there for over a quarter of the war years, and places shape people. And for me, this was a an acknowledgement that even though we know so much about Lincoln, there are whole parts of his story that have been undiscovered. That set me in motion in a variety of different ways. Now I'm working on an earlier period in his career, uh, his work behind the scenes in the 1850s to try to organize the Republican Party. And um, I'm hoping to continue to, to document ways that he worked as a political leader uh, and as a family man trying to juggle career and uh, family concerns uh, in a series of books and articles. Thank you, Matt. And I think that's a perfect way to conclude the podcast. I urge listeners to read Professor Matthew Pinsker's wonderful State of the Field essay on Lincoln Studies in the September 2009 issue of the JAH, which has a special section on Lincoln. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. 
This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in November for our next program. Once again, if you have comments or suggestions, please email us at jahcast at indiana.edu. Thank you.